Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Outpost 31, Alien Minutes, Autopsy of John Carpenter's Thing. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're going to be looking at Act 2A, uh, basically comprised of, uh, I think, three sequences. Uh, and we're going to begin with um, an establishing shot of the outpost. Uh, but before we get started, I want to introduce our guest. Cody Wyoming is back. Happy to be here. We're glad to have you here. It's not often that we get to have a guest who, honest to God, swears that the movie we're talking about is their very favorite movie This of all is time. my very favorite movie of all time. There's no question. That's pretty damn good. So welcome. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, we're just going to jump right in uh, as we talk about this, um, this sequence, the first sequence of, uh, of the second act. And it begins with uh, another Dawn establishing shot of the base but it takes us right into <laughs> what looks like wilford brimley eating crab legs yeah, One so, thing- so there's a large saucer of garlic butter one thing I'd, I'd like to um and and it's driven me nuts for a couple of years is i just have to nitpick about this movie just a little bit that they kind of got a little wrong is we've established that it's the first goddamn week of winter and we're in antarctica it's dark all the time. Oh. It's just dark. There is no dawn. And if there is dawn, it, depending on where they are in Antarctica, the closer to the South Pole they are, the less dawn there is. In some places, there's only a few minutes of it a day if we're in actual the first goddamn week of winter, as we said. So we may have this may be 24 hours later and we're going to get our 10 minutes of daylight. Is that what's going on? But it's just, there's, there's an awful lot of daylight in a movie set at the South Pole in the first week of winter, on during the shortest days of the actual year, John, has this been noted in uh, or Cody? I guess I can ask you: is that is that an, is that an original Cody Wyoming that's, that's, thought, or has this been has no? This that's been my written, observation. Has no, this been written heard, about anywhere? I've never heard this uh, complaint before. That's, Are we breaking some news here? Maybe, maybe. that's my observation. It's always right. just kind of bugged me because I've known some people who live in Alaska and they talk about you know how it's dark up it's there dark, and they're not yeah. even they're not even at the pole. So, okay, well. Thank you for listening, everyone. Yep. This movie's now ruined. I don't, how is it still your favorite movie? <laughs> to that massive plot hole. doesn't have to be a perfect movie to be a favorite movie, does it, Cody? I think it is a perfect movie regardless yeah, of that, actually. Pretty, pretty perfect. Well, so... Back Wolf, to the crab legs. Back to the crab legs. Yeah, so Wilfred is... is um, having a hell of a time. He's really I, wrestling that, I man. He's giving it a go. His, all of his vocal... Uh, gymnastics with his are just fantastic they're really amazing so we get a we get a pretty nasty um, <laughs> look autopsy. on his face is just <laughs> it's so good oh my god oh I don't think these vocal gymnastics, these, these responses, reactions are, are really acting. I don't think Brimley liked doing this at all. He was He's pretty critical of the monster effects and the fact that they're so visible in the movie. He didn't He didn't like that, that you can see the monster? Pretty much. I think he felt, uh, he says so in an interview, that he felt that, the, that Carpenter cheated the audience of the uh, ability to create the fear in their own mind, create the thing that they're most afraid of in their own mind, sort of going back to this conventional, the kind of conventional wisdom about horror movies, right? The old Val Luton thing of the unseen thing is scarier than the seen thing. The thing that 
where I disagree with Wilford Brimley here is that <laughs> this creature effects isn't the thing we're scared of in this movie. This I, isn't where the fear is coming I from. I completely at all. agree with you, and I, I also agree with you that um, and that that it's not that the creature effects are scary. What the what the creature effects are showing us is something that we have never seen before, and that right. nobody's ever seen before, and that just leads to the further disorientation that we feel that the characters feel that. What are we dealing with here? We just have no idea. And to leave that up to your imagination, I think, it would be kind of cheating, honestly, well, a little bit. And I feel like Mitch is just about to talk about Stephen King's Dance Macabre, perhaps. And that we have the three kinds of we horror. We do have the three kinds of horror. You're right. <laughs> Thank you, John. I, like you I wasn't. I had something else oh, to talk okay, about, okay. but I'll talk about that in a minute. But, but yes, you have the three kinds of horror according to Stephen King, which is horror, terror, and the gross out. Terror being the finest sensation, which is the the thing that you don't see, the thing that's off camera, the knock on the door, you answer the door, nobody's there, you close the door. The and who goes knock. there? Yeah, the who goes there part of it. Then you've got the horror, which is the assault, the attack, the direct confrontation. And then you've got the gross out, which is just the, the gag reflex. And and King says that, that those are the three horror techniques, and he's happy to use all of them and and this he, movie's loaded with and all And this three. movie all has of all of them yeah, and for sure. definitely used in every sense. So Brimley, I just think he wasn't thinking about it quite, he wasn't going that step further and thinking about what, <laughs> what a horror movie can be. He just was thinking, oh, it's a, it's a creature feature and we saw too much of the creature. I will say when it came out, I remember one person saying to me that they thought it was just too much of a rubber show. Audiences were kind of shocked by how completely out front all this stuff was. But I just thought it was so imaginative. Like, I don't care if it's a rubber show as long as it's interesting. And yeah. it was amazing. They're, they were showing us stuff I'd never seen before. And, you know, according to Dean Cundy, is well, uh, Boutin wasn't even a fan of showing it so overtly. He, uh, he kept insisting that they go a sh little shadowy. Let's cover that part of it a little bit more. Shr shroud it a little bit. You're showing too much of it in, in broad daylight. And, uh, I think Cundy and Carpenter thought, no, no, we're, we want to show this thing, man. This is good stuff. And I, I think that there had been, a, that after Jaws, that there had been, you know, a, a trend back to that of not showing, uh, not showing and, and keeping the, the creature and the monster out and that sort of thing. And I think that, that, that this was a good choice was to buck that trend and to go, you know what? We haven't been doing that for a long time. Nobody's been doing that because of, you know, Jaws Nobody except for Cronenberg. Except for Cronenberg, right. who, was, who was really an outlier right. at that time. But and he was all a big proponent of, I'm going to show it to you. You, you are going to see it, mm -hmm. you know? And so that was that was very much a conversation that was going on within the within the horror community at that point. And really, the, the touchstones of that horror community were, were Cronenberg, Carpenter, and Romero. Who were doing body horror and showing it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I, I think there's a really interesting, um, just to come back to this harping on my <laughs> my my fades business, but, you know, there's a an interesting shot of Wilford Brimley as he looks down. There's an actual freeze frame, and then there's a fade. And this is a fade that comes really at the end of the very first scene of this sequence. Right. I think it continues to disorient us, and that's why it's there. And then it, well, Because it, then you do a hard cut from that phase fade right into this um, same scene lecture. essentially same yeah really a couple minutes same scene. yeah a couple minutes later yeah I, it, but that was that that fade out was the one I, another one i was mentioning in the last episode where i think that we're getting uh some character out of that fade out i think right there the way brimley looks down i think he's already thinking they're fucked i think he's already like this is something I've never seen, and this can't be good, and I think we're fucked. And now I'm going to have to explain it, which I don't really want to do, probably. <laughs> and some for some reason, I'm going to touch this uh, <laughs> eraser to my lip. Which is just oh, genius, right? Uh, Everybody in the audience is watching. Like, he's got, oh, he just oh, puts yeah. it against his lip, but and he I just touched the thing with it. Yeah, Which is a theory, one of the outlying theories about when he gets... Oh, infected! But oh, you, well, he but does. John he, Carpenter himself says it's bullshit. Okay, so. he licks his lips afterwards too. But he also even. doesn't really actually touch the thing with the just, <laughs> eraser. He, he just so. points at he it. Just points at it. But Some there is a but there's a weird tension that's actually generated by that <laughs> whole thing. They discovered it in the editing. It's just generally some great pencil acting. He's waving it around, and, <laughs> and we're almost you know back to Alien a little bit. We got a nice little pencil eraser scene in Alien too. Right? That's true. <laughs> yeah, a little uh -huh. bit more overt, but. John, I haven't seen the Shout Factory DVD, which just came out recently, the right? Yeah. The Blu-ray. Uh, can you see a lot more monster in it? Hell yes. Way more. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's great. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's crisp. No, it's like it's All like right. seeing 
when you when you're locked onto those shots of the of the sculptures and everything, it's like you're in a gallery or so. It's like you're seeing slides from a museum. You're like, wow, I can see every detail of the 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 split face effect. I mean, it's just beautiful. I could just pause it and look at it, and I'm all for it. To me, I'm all for it. Be right in our face with these creatures. I don't. Like I said, I don't believe that has any that the creature itself has all that much to do with the horror of this movie. I think it's much more about the the pleasure of the creature is in its design and imagination. Like you said, Mitch, the horror is in the paranoia that we have between the characters. The paranoia, the isolation, the uncertainty, all of those yep. things. That's what the horror of the, the movie is. The horror is all inside of these people's minds. Um, the 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 creature is a, is a, is a science fiction element, yeah. a story element, and I think that showing that creature enables you and it's gnarly <laughs> it's so gross it's so gnarly there's just <laughs> random teeth and eyes coming out of strange places i'm dying to see the shot vic- the, the shot factory copy now because yeah. i want i'm so used to watching um either the regular blu-ray or the old dvd which is much more contrasty and lots of blacks and so i'm, I'm curious to see so john engel endorses the shot factory I think it blu-ray looks great. okay well that's 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 good to know and so i think we just we cut right also we go from the gross out the scene of explaining the gross out effects you know brimley explains it um we cut right into a syringe shot one of many syringe shots which is another gross out effect a very real one but man there's some people that can't just can't watch a movie that has a bunch of needles going into things and then you get one right into a dog um i think that that's i i it's a choice you know i think you could easily just say or show wide shots of people looking like they might be getting a shot or something but it, carpenter clearly chooses in this movie to do close-ups of actual people i believe it was the first camera assistant i can't oh, remember really? his name <laughs> who was always like yeah sure stick me man that's all right um <laughs> that no i do remember that the same yes. guy mm-hmm. yeah. so uh <laughs> yeah i'll take it go ahead stick me <laughs> um so, but he chooses to do those close-ups again i think there's a certain there's a body horror to that even sure. though it's it's yeah. very real and relatable oh yeah. and, and needle needle injections intravenous needle injections People hate that, and Most man, people, that's a yeah. great way to make somebody squirm. Almost everybody hates getting shots, and to watch somebody else getting one for real is like, ee, ee. <laughs> So I wanted to mention, since we're talking about close-ups, there's this conversation going on between uh, Blair and Clark, right? And I was just looking at these. They're big close-ups of these two guys, mm-hmm. and I better may as well talk about it now. Let's talk about the Dean Cundy eyelight business. So it's kind of harder to tell with Blair here. I I was thinking about it when I was watching the movie last that there's, he's wearing glasses and it kind of shrouds it a little bit. But according to you know things I've heard and what apparently Dean Cundy's even said is that there's an eye light present for those who are not a thing, and you can get a little glimmer of it in their in their eyeball. There's Wilford has one. Yeah, so really. Later see you'll see where Palmer doesn't have one. That's where it's the real tell. And Clark has one, Clark too. has one. Mm-hmm. But, of course, you don't know. You, we all think that Clark's a... Th- I mean, we're supposed to kind of start thinking that Clark's a thing right now. Because he's been around the dog so much. Yeah. And well, because Brimley... We can, we trust... It's Wilford Brimley. He's, he sells us oatmeal. We trust this guy. I don't want to hang out with either of these two guys, to be I, honest I think, with you. These two guys are really creepy, and they're together with the dogs, and they're having this conversation, and it's a very unsettling conversation to me because I think that they both... Are incredibly paranoid and mistrustful I, of each I was, other. I was watching um, some of the some of the back scenes and talk, watch an interview with Richard Mazur talking about Clark and about how, you know, he didn't like really people and that's why he works with the dogs. And I think that he plays that uh, he plays Clark as a mistrustful guy, as a guy who is separate from the other guys because he doesn't like them. And then that in some that helps translate to us that we're supposed to distrust Clark and it keeps him as the red herring that he's supposed to be because like. What is with this guy? What is what is with this guy, man? Well, remember back to his introduction. It's kind of an interesting combination of things because uh, his introduction is we've seen everybody else, and then he enters the scene alone. So that speaks to that. But then what does he do? Pets the dog. Straight to the dog. Yeah. He pets the dog. So actually, we're kind of being told two things. Like, this guy's an outsider. Are we supposed to trust him? Well, he is petting a dog. Well, wait, the dog isn't to be trusted either, is it? It's kind of a funny mind game that and they're I did playing with that. forget that other than Kurt Russell, he was the other person who is kind of known one at this at point from One Day at a Time where yeah. he played a really nice character. But I have to admit, when I saw the movie, I didn't recognize him because of the beard until about halfway through and I finally like heard his voice. I was like, wait a minute, it's that guy from One Day at a Time. Yeah. He's a pretty affable 
character in most of the movies that he's in, but not in this. He's a very, really enigmatic figure in this movie. Yep. He's kind of cagey and detached and just seems like he doesn't and, like anybody. And I think, I mean, I think his body language and every the, his method of speaking is also, like I said earlier, methodical in a way that you're supposed to kind of think he's not entirely human. I think they're, they're hinting at that just a little bit. He says, what this the is, hell are you looking at me like that for? That's I, That moment is so tense to me because Brimley then, Blair then, has to look at him, <laughs> continue looking yeah. at him and go, huh, how do I deal with this part uh, of the conversation? I don't know. Probably like, probably well, nothing. The, the, <laughs> the old probably nothing, which always means, yeah, I'm definitely got a problem here, buddy. Three scenes in a row follow Blair. Blair. I mean, we go from him doing the autopsy, then to the scene with Clark, and now we cut to another scene where he's watching videos that have been recovered from from the Norwegians, and I think that's interesting that we're moving us. You know, we move away from Mac, and we're with him for three scenes, uh, but now we're back to the group, and you've got these great Carpenter shots where he's got six or seven people in the frame, and I, there's something also I really I don't know what it is I, I really particularly enjoy about this sequence, but I like I like in a movie when the people are researching a thing and we're watching their research and we're seeing what. We're seeing the footage of what went on with the Norwegians, and now we're kind of hearkening back to the to the Hawks. Totally, the Hawks movie, the actual oh, yeah. shot of them circling the uh, circling the flying saucer, um, you know, which is a really nice nod to the original. Um, but still, and, and and thermite charges, which when I saw the thing, the John, the Howard Hawks film, you know, they use these thermite bombs, and I I wondered was is that a thing? Mm-hmm. Like, is there such a thing as a thermite? charge does anybody know is it real i assume so movies have said so, so i assumed I it was them. a made-up thing and then and then carpenter decides well just as a as a tip of the hat to it we're going to have them talk we're going to acknowledge <laughs> these thermite charges so um any anyone out there who's an explosive expert that wants to weigh in on our facebook page i'd love to know more about whether there's such eric, a thing as a thermite maybe charge. eric Moore blows things up too i don't know I yeah mean, he might know too it could be yeah he might know He'll go from effectively to <laughs> explosively speaking. Maybe it's just me, but whenever a scene like this comes up in a movie, like a horror movie or something, and the character, they're like, "What happened to these people?" And they watch a video, and it's like, "Here they are alive." One of the one or two of these people are that thing that was like, well, you know. To me, I find it a little bit just like like chilling. It's not like I'm terrified or scared. It's just one of those chilling things where I'm like, ah, yes, those people were once alive and kind of excited about finding this thing. And one of them's in the next turn, room. One of them's in the next room with two faces. I, I think we have a nice trans, um, a nice transformation in terms of Max's attitude towards flying. Right, we get two mm-hmm. different sides of that because this time, it's dangerous and he has no worries about going up in it. Yeah. he is. Well, he knows he knows that he's good, but there's something that has to be done, and and he's the guy that's got to do it, and so it doesn't even cross his mind. Wait, remind me, why is Norris the one that goes with him? Is there a job description reason, or does Norris just volunteer because he's a thing and he wants to see what what McCready's going to find? Is he a map guy? Because he's playing with the map. Maybe he's the cartographer. Is he a cartographer? Maybe I don't don't know. know. Does he also know French fluently? I don't know if that's just part of being a cartographer or not. You know, all, all the information that I get is from movies. Yeah, it's a good question because Mac doesn't know it, but the thing's with him. Yeah, right? yeah. I hadn't thought about so that. So he's yes. taking the thing for a is ride. the thing investigating as well, wanting to know what they know, just trying to stay ahead of them. Of course, isn't the thing's idea to get away, like, and to get to the greater population? I don't know. See, this is where I almost don't want to get into that stuff. Where I'm like, eh, There's another one of those <laughs> great white fades. And th- we got three guys now, right? So it's so. Oh, yeah, that's true. All right. So who's the third one? Uh, oh, crap. I've forgotten who the third one is. Is it Nulls? No, Why it's would not it, Nulls. I couldn't, you can't roll Oh, is it Bennings? Tundra. It was Bennings and Norris and yeah, Mac yeah, yeah, were yeah, in yeah. the last shot before they went. So here's where uh, we get Enterprise saucer separation. Now, definitely, this is what I was talking about. Where I really think about a uh, Star Trek. Paintings. That, I love matte paintings. That's a great, a great Albert painting. Whitlock matte painting. He was the the dean of matte painters at Universal at the time. You know, he'd worked on Hitchcock. He'd worked on uh, Earthquake. Did he he the stuff for uh, North by Northwest, and I think so. But I I think it's so. so good. But I know he did the stuff for for all the disaster movies in the in the seventies. He did definitely did Earthquake. He was their head of. Uh, matte, matte paintings and in effects. 
Um, we're back to the adventure movie for sure Big at this time. point, right? Yeah. We've got guys rappelling down ice flows. and So h- let's talk for a second about these matte paintings mm-hmm. that are obviously matte paintings. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's okay, right? It's it, There's something magical about it, right? We're, I will take a matte painting over CG any day uh, as, as a kind of background shot. There's something, there's something about it that makes me makes me buy it uh more that makes me i don't know how it's even though it's even a two-dimensional um two-dimensional thing as well something about something about there's something about how when a thing exists in physical space it translates better for me than a thing that doesn't exist in physical space a digital image and i just and i i don't know maybe it's i also wonder am i just appreciating the artistry involved because it's somebody with a brush and paint you know that there's probably also some nostalgia involved in that because probably this is what we came up with. So probably so. Kids I just that didn't like come the... up this this way. They came up with CG. Probably see it the opposite way. John, how does this look on the Shop Factory disc? Because there is a little bit of compositing that's a that's mm-hmm. a little, and I don't know whether it's because of the you know the gate weave when they were actually filming it. Is it? I mean, it to me, the whole thing looks great. I don't yeah. remember watching this and going, oh, that matte painting, that matte really sticks out more or anything like that. It looks remember. maybe better than the DVD. It, it, I mean, to me, the whole thing looked better than right. any version I'd seen of it before. You know, visually, I had fallen in love probably with Forbidden Planet and my love of matte paintings probably starts there. Yeah. We have multiple fades to white in this sequence, which I think is really interesting. There's one that then takes us to the... The block of ice the that was cut of, out, yeah, in the in the in the ice. There's just this big square hole. I love the, in the, in some of the behind the scenes stuff. You can see where they shot that on a on a kind of a hillside in Los Angeles, and it's just white sheets laid down in, in a, on a green lawn. Oh yeah, <laughs> and they're just walking down a green lawn on top of white sheets. Jesus, how long you figure this has been in the ice? Well, the backscatter effect's been bringing things up from way down. Around here for a long time, I'd say, I'd say the ice that's buried in is a hundred thousand years old, at least. Those Norwegians blew it up. Yeah. sequence pretty much ends at that point there's a music cue that comes up we have a big shift to a night establishing shot of the of the place that moves us into the sixth sequence of the movie and it's a discussion about what is this thing i don't know thousands of years ago it crashes and this thing gets thrown out or crawls out and it ends up freezing in the ice i just cannot believe any of this voodoo bullshit Charles, happens all the time, man. They're falling out of the skies like flies. Government knows all about it, right, Mac? You believe any of this voodoo bullshit, Blair? Charles? Charles? Chariots of the gods, man. They practically own South America. I mean, they taught the Incas everything they know. Do you think the kids these days understand that reference to Chariots of the Gods? Maybe. I don't know. It's on Prime right now. We just watched it it the other night. (laughs) Is it really? It really is. Oh, is is it super cheesy? It's super cheesy. And the leaps of logic that they make to support their conclusion are just ridiculous. (laughs) Does Rod Serling narrate it? No. Okay, so I remember there was also one that Rod Serling narrated because I remember him saying Nazca Plain. And there's something about the way he said Nazca Plain in in that... and that Rod Serling voice that made it really special. I remember one that Leonard Nimoy did. In Search Nimoy of Ancient did. Astronauts? In Search of, Leonard Nimoy did an In Search of. Series, of, yeah. That was, that was very much, pretty much Chariots of Gods with Leonard Nimoy doing this, the same. As a movie or as just an episode? It was, of, I think it was a, a feature length. Uh, maybe, maybe that was In it. Search of episode. Okay, well, I gotta have to get on YouTube and see whether I can find Rod Serling saying Nazca Plain. I remember being confused that my seventh grade science teacher showed me the Leonard Nimoy uh, in class, uh, in search of episode, I was like, "This is 
science? I was, <laughs> really? Bermuda Triangle? What? I do remember going <laughs> to the museum in Mexico City and seeing that one carving that does look kind of like an astronaut, and he's got his feet on the pedals, and he's got these gears that he's interesting. pulling at, and it's like, wow, that's like... That was either just a really high guy, you know, putting his fantasy in stone, or maybe he really saw something. I don't know. Masculine, it's a real thing. Apparently, yeah. So this theorizing that goes on in this scene where Mac is trying to explain how this all, all, this all worked uh, is interrupted by a plot point, which has to do with somebody's dirty clothes that have been discarded. So come on now, McCready. The Norwegians get a hold of this, and they dig it up out of the ice. Yes, Gary, they dig it up. They cart it back. It gets thawed out, wakes up, probably not in the best of moods. I don't know why. Well, you disrespectful man been tossing his dirty drawers in the kitchen trash can. Huh? For now, I want my kitchen clean, all right? Germ free. Now, how's this motherfucker wake up after thousands of years in the ice? And how can it look like a dog? I don't know how. Because it's different than us, see? Because it's from outer space. What do you want from me? Ask him. You buy any of this, Blair? Can anybody help me with this? Are we saying that when somebody turns into the thing, they shred their clothes? Well, that's what McCready says later. Very specifically in his dictaphone. So, But how does that work exactly? I don't know. Because then they have to be wearing the clothes or... Are things always wearing different clothes later? No. So I don't know. You don't know you're the thing. So yeah, you go about But you shredded your clothes? I don't know. There's an inconsistency too because Knowles is the one that brings the clothes in and later McCready says it was Palmer that found the clothes. It's I noticed that earlier. I'd never really thought about it before, but it's like, oh, it's a weird inconsistency. But the scene, the dictaphone scene is a reshoot as well. It's one of those added scenes they had to put in because they felt like the story needed a lot of support from little bits of exposition here and there it's weird we get another bizarre fade off of wilford brimley's face at the end of this discussion and then a hard cut into the computer module some really outstanding computer Which graphics even even john carpenter does <laughs> I mean, I, I, it, this is all fine with me, but man, it's there's no way they have a they have this. <laughs> it's yeah. completely made up. Uh-huh. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. I think Carpenter says on the commentary, "Yeah, we didn't get this right, really." But <laughs> we just happened to have a computer that could. But this was a re- this <laughs> was a an alien well. assimilation. I think in the script they were looking at slides, like in micro, you know, in, in oh, okay. microscopes, and they thought they needed a better visual for this so this was another thing that was i think that it works uh you know ultimately but it it, it reminds us it's same same summer too we're at the con right no and and we're getting it's sort of similar to the genesis you know do some kind of low-grade computer animation to you know (laughs) and obviously the one at the con is pretty good it definitely sets it in a certain time doesn't it this is mm -hmm. this is without a doubt an 80s early 80s movie right but if it's if it's actually 1982 you're thinking it might be the future like how would this guy have the this is not normal for that time to have these kind of animations you know this is pretty advanced stuff yeah i I love what i I understand at least i love blair sitting there reading this stuff with a stopwatch in his hand no that's what i was (laughs) gonna say that too he's looking at this high tech you know for 1982 computer animation with a stopwatch (laughs) with a monocle in his eye (laughs) he's the slide rule he's about to pull out and the abacus (laughs) sitting on the desk next to him so this is another uh, you know another scene that reminds me of alien a little bit this is a bit of a mother it's definitely a mother moment yeah yeah but no voice on this computer the only voice belongs to the chess wizard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where is Adrian Barbeau now? Why isn't she the one telling us this? Well, it'd so, go down a lot easier if Adrian Barbeau told me that. Yeah, it always does. Is it 27,000 hours from first contact? Yeah, it is. That, uh, uh, not, my math's not good, but that's not a lot of long time to infect the entire planet. But it is a long enough time to start doing something about, about it, it right in the now. meantime. Yeah. Or right now, or even in the meantime. Had to yeah. get, say this was Danny Boyle's version, and it was, you know, the 127,000 <laughs> well, 27, hours. Like, we could cordon <laughs> off some people here and maybe solve this problem. 27,000 hours later. 
fifth, that's the, the fifth but, movie. That's but, the next one. But I like that what he does is after is this is the first thing that he does. Like you said, that we could do something about it. He re- reads twenty seven thousand hours, opens up the drawer and pulls <laughs> out a pistol. It's like well, okay, well, all I need is twenty seven thousand bullets. This is a this is a Wilfred Brimley type of moment though. What's this? All right, better grab my gun, get my gun, and go get Nothing some oatmeal. He's he's really kind of the secret hero of this movie, isn't he? I didn't well, I didn't to a certain point, yeah. How much time we're spending with him? We've spent way more time with him than anybody other than Mac. No, to act. I I think we're going to find that Act Two A is Blair, Blair's movie. It belongs to Wilfred Brimley, <laughs> and not a nod from the Academy. <laughs> not at all. Which is sad. It you is know? Sad. Can well, you he, imagine he what scene would it have been for <laughs> for the best supporting actor? Nomination oh, for Wilfred Brimley. Which scene would they show the you? The new scene where he's, where he's sitting there. I'm I'm a lot feeling a lot better now. Like, <laughs> I feel I feel better, and I want to come inside. <laughs> either that, or I'll kill you. <laughs> it could be that too. So this is the dictaphone scene. No, no, it's just followed by by him inspecting these clothes, looking to see if there's and a name. Now he's on drinking it. a banquet beer. Oh yeah, and the scotch, Coors and and JNB. We got JNB in a product a, placement. I hope. Yeah. I hope they had. So all was the it a bud beers. earlier? It, it's a bud that he smashed the fire well, extinguisher. I love it. They're yet, getting yeah. all kinds of, of product placement money for this movie. Of course, this predates product placement money, right? That's oh, happening right right at the same time as Reese's Pieces. I mean, Is that a Ravel model up there on the shelf? By I the think way? so. I noticed that like earlier. A fighter as well. plane or something. I actually thought for a second that looks like a Legos box, like, but no, it obviously wouldn't have been then. But so we finally get away from. Blair to go to Bennings and uh, windows, windows who are moving bodies around. So the idea is that they're going to bust the windows out and turn this into a freezer, right? Is that is that the plan? Is it? The thing that I've always kind of wondered is why why did they need Mac to be in proximity with them for the scene to work, right? So I always felt like it was a little labored. Oh, Mac, you come get your stuff out of here. Like I always like what? <laughs> why does it, why does it have to? It's, I don't know what their plan is. I thought they were just going to store it in there. So why can't his stuff stay in there? Because he yeah. wants his stuff. He doesn't want his stuff. So to he get usually cold. goes in and gets his stuff, and uh, I guess so. they're going to lock it up. I think. Okay. I think they're going to lock it up, bust the window. Okay. The out of it. Is arguably the the cheapest move in this movie is having the blanket that's covering the thing start to move. It does start to leak something, so I'll give it that. But see, I think that would have been enough. I think you're right. The movement. Might not have been necessary, but I think it, it's okay to get that <gasps> from the audience right before this happens. Because I don't know if this is as a as gaspy a moment. You mean as the dripping the moving, when the thing starts the to drip, drip? When the drip starts to happen, that's more of like oh, where the movement is more like a. <gasps> and you so know it's what I mean? Im- <laughs> and then it's implied that that's <laughs> I have I have sound effects for every I have sound effects for every horror trope. Okay. And so then it's implied that that's where Bennings gets it right well, there. I'm guessing no, it won't even be implied. It's gonna be overt well i mean but because i was i i had always often wondered if bennings wasn't actually the first infected when the dog is licking his face right right that right at the top that's a good guess but i think that i think that's definitely not the case yeah because it accelerates in almost real time from right now true because it goes from them and uh bennings in in the room together with the thing that's leaking to an outdoor shot of the meeting in the what they call the thiokol uh, we like to call it a snowcat in The Shining, but yes, they're in the Thiokol having a meeting, Fuchs and MacReady, uh, and Fuchs is suspicious of Blair, which is interesting because he's mm-hmm. he maintains he's locked himself up in in his room and he's got weird notebooks that Fuchs has gotten a hold of. Well, and it, and it, and because we know that Blair obviously does become the monster, I don't think that he is by the time they lock him up. I think that he's, I think that he's kind of lost losing it a little bit because he knows the stakes that are involved yeah. and it's kind of it's kind of blown his mind literally like he's kind of broken now and you know locked himself in his room and and stuff starts to go crazy i don't think he gets infected until he gets till until after they lock him up yeah he's in the in the shed in the tool shed is where he gets infected yes. i think for sure otherwise the stakes that we just spent all this time establishing kind of are kind of pointless like who? Why would the thing need to know the stats? You know, right. Like, so are you saying that, that the undercut. thing goes up and gets him? Yep. Yes. Think, yep. Who? We don't know who that is at that point, right? Right. But to I never the, thought about that. I never knew when Blair got affected. But I guess that's the whole thing about I left the light on and now it's off or something. That's mm-hmm. the moment. Okay. Well, which we'll, I mean, we'll get there. I think there's a good chance that he's uh, he's definitely to me he's definitely not infected when he goes into the tool shed. 
but our our Oscar scene with it might be him infected. That might be why he's better now. He might really be better now because he's a thing now. Well, and, and what, he had know. to at that point he had to have had some time to do all of the digging and assembling downstairs that he's. He gets a lot of work done. He really does. There's one theory though Get too there. that that's a joint that could be a joint effort because I think if anybody got in to infect him, it probably came through the floor. Otherwise, true, you know. So it could be that the other thing that infected him could have also participated in the building of the spaceship. All of this is stuff that doesn't happen in uh, in Act Two <laughs> nope, of, the, of the movie, but that's okay. We'll we'll be we'll circling there, back around to it. So you move in this real time from Windows and Bennings moving the corpse into the storeroom. Mac goes out with Fuchs to the thigh call to, to have a conference. Windows leaves Bennings alone, right? Yes. So after Mac and Fuchs have their conference, we cut to Windows coming in, looking for Bennings, who's been left alone, and he finds... Gore. Gore, right. Gory clothes. Specifically torn uh, clothes. Torn clothes. Torn ripped clothes. through their clothes. So, so it so. rips through his clothes. So he turns around, well, and he sees Bennings in the corner becoming the thing. He's got pants on, but... Um, but his shirt came off. So that's... So okay. much like the right. Hulk... <laughs> Much like the Hulk, but but mercifully leaves the pants on. We see him in this disgusting Lovecraftian tentacled situation, and then cut back out to McCready and Fuchs. So I again, I I make my case, friends, that part of the reason this works so well is that we're in real time. Yeah. What would Stanley Kubrick have done? He would have done exactly this, which is build these these real time segments one on top of another so you don't have to whipsaw the audience back and forth and make big time jumps. So I just think that's really wonderful about this movie. Uh, and then the next thing you know, poor old Bennings is gone uh, and running out across the, the ice and Mac and, and the gang chase after him with a flare. Again, still in real time. Right. So we have to talk about how this is actually option number three for Bennings' death in the movie. This was actually... Try number three of how Bennings is supposed to die. The initial one was a very expensive sequence that I think would probably come later in the movie where they were actually going to chase. I don't know who was supposed to be the thing, but they were worried that it was going to get to the coast and they're going to chase it on snowmobiles. And then the thing would get Bennings from under the ice and drag him down. There's, there's concepts art of it and so on. And then a mysterious individual in another scene, I think near the kennel, stabs him in the neck with a screwdriver. <laughs> that was going to be how he was going to die. So there we were going to get a good old-fashioned murder, uh, maybe thing on thing on human murder or human on human murder. I'm not sure which. That didn't work for them at all. And so we get this, which I think is super. It's super understated and very effective. I love it. I love it because this is. It has to be conflicting for them. Mm-hmm. For their actions here, they have to be feeling something because this looks like their friend Bennings. Exactly. He, he, I mean, he's got a weird hand, and he's not. He's got that Donald Sutherland body snatchers mm-hmm. kind of thing. Do you going think that's on. an accident? Because uh, that's I think it every single time I see it, I think that's that's I, body. Snatchers I can't. Face. I can't not think of it. I. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was or not. But but he still looks like their friend Bennings, and they know that they've got to torch him. But that has to be very conflicting for them, and you know I like seeing our I like seeing our heroes be conflicted about their actions. And it's almost you know we get the the flares are a nice touch, but it, it reminds us as we were when we were talking about Silence of the Lambs, it kind of reminds us of the old Corman light it with the car, you know, with the car headlights. It has this this quality to it, lighting wise, that I think makes it real and mm-hmm. immediate and creepy. So, John, do you know? Given these multiple deaths of Bennings, are we still in British Columbia for this sequence, or did they shoot this back at Universal after? It's got to be Universal after the show um, shut down temporarily. Because I think that I think see this is where I'm going to have to speculate or try to dig in my memory a little bit, but I could be wrong. They never shot this the snowmobile killing. That's all just in, in the storyboards. They did shoot the screwdriver. I think it made it into a rough assembly, which means this would have probably had to be universal because I think by the time they had a rough assembly, they were wrapped. So I could can be you explain? Can you explain a little bit more about when the production 
either one of you guys when the production shut down because right that's what happened it, sh- it shut down for a period of time right and then there were rewrites and reconfigurations and then and then they went back to filming right well, i believe there was see again i'm 100 percent sure but i believe there was a rough assembly and then they went and did reshoots i don't know if i would call it a shut down i think they thought they had the movie oh, wrapped oh okay but i could be wrong about that it's all this is all from i don't remember any specific story about that in any interview or anything but you pick up what you can from what people say in the interviews about the process or in the commentaries. And that's what I think happened was they did a rough assembly and things just didn't quite gel. And narratively, they thought it was a little bit too um, ambiguous at times. They needed the, the audience to be up to date on things. So that's why we get the, you know, I'm a human being's a reshoot, uh, the dictaphone and the animation there that we saw with, with Blair are all places where they bridged the movie to make sure that it that it moved correctly so the they got everybody back for mm-hmm. those reshoots oh because i was under the impression that it had for one reason or another there had been a big break within the actual within the actual budgeted filming time and so they didn't have to go get people you back but could be i'm right, going man. to do I'm some research on sure. that and find out for sure or for those of you who are listening uh, and you know feel when, free when you're getting your information from every actor and like they all could be wording it differently <laughs> So I right. some people call it a right. reshoot when it maybe it's not technically a reshoot, you know, but yeah. but again, so Benning's death, I think that it also helps. He is kind of a creepy looking dude. <laughs> uh, and that's no offense to him. It's very it, yeah. I mean, from the beginning of the movie you're kind of like, okay, this guy's an interesting looking guy. Boy, his his face works. All he has very to do is open so. his bite, his mouth really wide and act weird and he's a monster. And it's very effective. Given all of the breath that you can see from everybody's um, mouths outside, I guess my guess would be this was probably this not Southern been. California. Might be they right. were probably up in BC, but who knows? I'm going to find that out. By golly, my my guess is anything that they're that they're doing that involves large explosions or barrels of kerosene on fire were probably shot outside, right? As opposed right. to inside a, a well, no, I mean these were outdoors. The, the, the I'm a human being and all that that's I, I'm 99% positive that was in LA but they at least that wasn't in the original assembly that was a re written scene that was something that they felt right. they had to add in I think what's interesting is even though they've just they torch this guy the action continues in real time as Matt goes back inside and Gary follows him and uh, Matt's gone back in to get to get a flamethrower to to finish the job i just love the way that the movie takes its time the movie keeps us right there and it, it's not it feels like it's evolving right in front of us you know like i it doesn't feel phony it doesn't feel forced my god what was happening to him if it had more time to finish it would have looked and sounded and acted just like benny's i don't know what you're saying that was one of those things out there trying to imitate him gary come on McCready, I know Bennings. I've known him for ten years. He's my friend. We've got to burn the rest of them. This conversation specifically plays to that, and I really like this conversation a lot. It's when when uh, when Gary says what was happening to him. He's asking McCready. The guy in charge is asking McCready what's going on, what was happening to him, and they're still just piecing together this information, these little bits and stuff that they have. They don't know what this thing is yet. Entirely, they know that it did look like a dog, and and Mac has pieced together. It wasn't done imitating him yet. It yeah. it got a hold of him, and it was turning into him, but it wasn't finished yet. See, that's one of the great things about how this narrative moves. Where there's a version of this movie that could have been made, a much lesser version, where there's a monster, and they're not sure about it's coming out of the shadows, and so and so is getting picked off. Here and people are getting picked off, right? It's like, what's doing this? There's that version of the movie that mm-hmm. could have been. We're we get a process here, and I think it's kind of it's another reason why the in cold light of day showing of the effects early on works because here's this insane, brutal, disgusting looking thing. How could this even be? And then we we get the, our first guy who we see become the thing. We actually get another step of the process. Oh. Well, here's a th- guy that we've seen living, breathing, walking around. 
sort of turned into a thing, but they got him before he got too far. But filtered through the point of view of Windows, so you have mm-hmm. a character witness it and, yep. and see it happen. And, you know, it, it plays off of one, again, I talk about one of my favorite things about this movie is that the relationship that these guys have with each other is approximately as close as the relationship that we as an audience have with these guys. Um, you know, they're, they're colleagues, they're coworkers, they're friends, kind of, but we don't know that much about each other apart from their professionalism. There's a detachment because they're colleagues. They're guys who are throwing it, and we have about that relationship with them. So as we learn things, the way that we learn, the way that they learn things in real time as they're learning it, I think is really effective at putting us inside the story and inside the movie because now we feel like we're we're part of this gang you know i'm as i'm as close to mccready as mccready is to nulls you know what i mean we feel like we're in this together with these guys yeah close but not too close close but not too close but at the same time we're we're just at the end of the scene where our grizzled old man with the six shooter on his hip just got really emotional and told us that he was friends with that guy for 10 years that might actually kind of be the first time McCready's even heard this. Mm-hmm. It's possible. Yeah. Because this is a guy that's probably going to, uh, clearly going to keep his emotions close to his chest most of the time. But when they set fire to his friend, he breaks down a little bit. And and I a, think we're, we're keeping up with him in that sense, too. I, yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons that that's where the new sequence of this uh, in the movie starts. Yeah. Because because when with that scene of Gary following Mac in and having this, really kind of the most that Gary has said in the entire movie in the aftermath of what just happened to Bennings, I think that moves us into a new into a new sequence where we realize the dynamics have changed yet again. You know, one of our guys is dead and he happened to be your friend and the guy who's supposed to be in charge is actually coming running to our guy, to Mac, and <laughs> yeah. looking for to him for answers. And so it's a the sequences in this thing turn on emotions and 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 not you know, and they turn on emotions and changing dynamics. And that's yeah. that's what good sequences should going back to what you just said just a second ago too about you know he he, we were friends for 10 years and he says that and it's we don't know also these guys don't haven't been there for 10 years they rotate in and out now Mm -hmm. who's been there for more than one tour you know who's been there for two seasons or three tours or whatever they call it you know it was like maybe those guys have been there for a while and have been working at this particular outpost for a long time and and you know maybe max only been there for two seasons and so he doesn't know who's Who's yeah. the tightest and, and how long other people have known each other? Again, they're not friends. They're colleagues and coworkers, but maybe some of them, as we just learned, are. Do you think, um, speaking as all of us men of a certain age, we like that in this movie. We like the fact that there are these open spaces, these information that we, we're not privy to. Do you think if this movie were made today, there would be a, a, a need on the part of the audience to have everybody explained more? Yeah, I think that there would be have been a, at very least there would have been a scene between Gary and Bennings earlier that would have shown that they were friends. You know, because now I I can imagine someone seeing that scene and going, "Well, what, he's just saying they're friends all of a sudden. I didn't see anything to establish that." It's like, well, that's what we're getting at though, is that that keeps pace with how much information we get as an mm-hmm. audience and how much information perhaps McCready's getting. But I feel like nowadays there might be a little bit more of an obligation towards the setting everything up in a certain way so that when the scene comes it just goes oh yeah they were friends I remember how they were well and and again that just plays that just how good Carpenter does in in showing and not telling his character development and he's he's not going to beat you over the head he's just going to let them unfold be the guys that they are and let you witness it and make your own observations about who they are and what they're what you know it that's what puts you inside this movie I think and it keeps it scary that's the other thing, is that the less we know, probably, the more off guard we're going to be. Yeah. We're struggling to try to figure shit out. The less we know about the people and the less we know about the situation, not about what the monster looks like. That's immaterial. That's for mind-blowing and that's for, that's for story development. But that's not for the scares and the chills. The paranoia is about not knowing about the people. So we get another incredible uh, flamethrower moment <laughs> out here in the snow. What fun. Um, Mac torches what's left to poor old Bennings and the remains of they've also put the the other remains right everybody has been bur- is being burned out or, cleaned, and they even say it we there's nothing else in the in the storehouse remember the, the key bit of information from Blair's notebook was that these things are still alive right they're still living something living going on inside of them so now that they know that they're going to get they don't care about Nobel prizes anymore there's one guy that they don't know where it is right at this point Blair 
Right. The overall, the objective at this point is where's Blair? Nobody knows where Blair is. Yep. So we're, we're, everybody's trying to, trying to figure that out. And once again, Mac has to take charge and kind of say, well, you keep every, you go try to find him and then keep everybody else in the rec room. He doesn't want to be the boss, but it seems to be falling to him again and again. What's interesting though, is that we had, we just, you know, discussed quite a bit that Clark is, you know, he's a red herring, but we're, you know, as we're watching this movie for the first time, we're thinking probably he's a thing. And they've gotten away from him pretty far. At this we haven't point. seen him for for quite a bit yet. Well, he's been in the shot. Wasn't he just in the shot there? But I didn't see there's him. No focus there's on there's him no focus all. on him at all. Yeah. But somebody destroys the helicopter, mm-hmm. right? Right. Somebody runs. From we the see helicopter. somebody running with an axe, and we don't know. Do we ever find out who that is? Was it Norris? We, I think we know it's Blair. I think it has Blair. to be Blair. Be yeah. Blair. He doesn't want this thing to get back We're to the mainland. We're about to see him sabotage more stuff with an axe. Yeah. He's got the axe and he's going to go into the radio room. But he could be working in conjunction with Palmer, you know. We really don't know or Norris. How, communi- <laughs> how what the what the thing community is like. Are they do they work together? Are they in cahoots? Are they in competition with each other? Are they completely separate entities? It'd be, it'd be all speculation because there's no indication of it really. It's great. I think whatsoever. that's great that there's not because you, you really, can't you the can't smell that the other guy's a thing. One thing can't yeah, maybe doesn't recognize can't. another one. Maybe not. There's not that like spider verse spidey sense where they go, oh, you're one of me, you're one of us too. When he discovers that the helicopter has been trashed, he doesn't have time to process it because there's gunshots inside. Mm-hmm. So I back to my harping on this thing. This all feels like it's happening in real time. From the time that Bennings turned into the thing to now is all continuous, Absolutely. continuous action, and it's that's the genius of this thing. Okay, there's something I have to point out here. Uh, during this scene, because it's it's I think it's the most telling part of the movie where this it's this just, is this is the scene you're talking about is when when the shooting when Blair, Blair goes crazy, crazy and is destroying the radio room. It, it this is just some back you know behind the scenes trivia. Um, Keith Dave very early on in production broke his hand his left hand in a car accident. In this particular scene, you you see very overtly how they're hiding this hand. Like he's always in a doorway. He's always putting his hand behind people. But it's in this scene, if you watch it, folks, uh, where he, he'll come in and run in behind McCready, I believe, and kind of put his left hand, arm on him. And you can see the goddamn balloon of a hand he has. It's really oh, bizarre. So uh, I just want to point that out because there, there's multiple times throughout the movie where they had to continue shooting, but they just hid him behind things. His left side <laughs> behind things so that you couldn't see because his hand was, he. I guess he didn't go to the hospital right away. All these things kind of went wrong and the inflammation got way out of hand. I'd also like to take okay, uh, yeah. just a second to commiserate with poor Windows. Uh, Windows has been shit on in this movie <laughs> since oh, the very yeah. first scene that we see him. He did, he gets yelled at, you know, he's, he's yelled at and berated and, and nobody talks to him. He's not in the scenes really with the other guys. He's isolated and now he's get, he's gotten his ass kicked and he's in the room hiding under the desk when Blair goes crazy smashing yeah. everything yeah. and so uh, windows is the lambert right <laughs> yeah right uh, he's kind <laughs> of the lambert of yeah, kind oh, of, God. yeah kind of he kind of he's the first one to well besides blair has good reason to be freaking out For he's sure. not he's freaking out because he thinks humanity's doomed windows freaks out in a minute just because he gets scared so at this point blair has just had a nervous breakdown right yeah. he's not the thing no well, he's I, just he's just not happy no, he, he's he's saying out loud, nobody's getting out of here. None of us leaves. But that's not because he's the thing. It's because he, he wants to, he stop, wants the to stop the thing mm-hmm. by everybody dying. If he was yeah. the thing, he'd be like, guys, we need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Now, let me ask you guys, when you run out of ammo, do you guys throw your gun? <laughs> Every time. <laughs> Every time? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what else are you going to do? Reload it? Probably beat somebody over the head with it if they get closer to well, you. Well, if they're maybe. not close to you, though, you throw I it at them. I just think throwing a gun is just, I've never quite understood that. Well, I guess if you're in the throes of a nervous breakdown, you're not really thinking clearly. Yeah, maybe so. When they finally subdue him and and punch him, you don't see the fist hit his face. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's hidden. And I yeah. just think that's a great move. I just, you know, it's like, here's a movie that shows you everything, and then it sort of decides in, in a few instances, hey, you guys have all seen... Somebody fake a punch to somebody's face a million times. Oh yeah, so we're not going to show you that. We're gonna we're gonna disguise it. And I just think it's really this I, was they're thinking. You know, he's yeah. always thinking. This well, guy. Th- apparently, also there was all the uh, Brimley was not a fan of shooting this scene either. 
he was afraid to have that table thrown at him. He was afraid of getting hurt to the whole. I guess he was real pensive about the whole thing. Really, but then he wow. puts that axe through the table. I'm more concerned for Kurt Russell, man. He's a, yeah, he's right on the other side. That looked kind of like a close call to me. So I don't know who should have been more scared, but I guess Brimley was. Well, I don't know if I want to do He's just not going to be the action star. That's just pretty much what <laughs> no. it's coming down to, right? No, he's ready to be grandpa and, already. And again, I love Windows just collapsing from total exhaustion in the corner. just With his eyes I, rolling up. I can't head. do anymore. <laughs> That's all. I can't do no more. Yeah, so with Blair subdued, we cut to Clark, uh, who is where Clark always is at the dog kennel, but has discovered something pretty awful, which is that someone has buried an axe in one of the dogs. And left the axe. And left the axe behind. <laughs> kind of a case. weird move, just like really for shock value, so I that's guess. two axes, right? There's no shortage there's, of there axes. There are a lot of axes here. There's no doubt about it. And once it. again, the executives at Universal for their summer movie are probably <laughs> shitting bricks. Well, uh, again, this. it's their fault that it was a summer movie. That's right. That's exactly right. I have to find out who, was, who made that brilliant decision. So what does this tell us, though, like we said, we haven't been with Clark for a while. We're meant to believe he might be a thing. We cut to a close-up of him right after this big action sequence. I, that close-up would tell me, oh, uh, maybe this is what's really going on. And But then what does it tell us that he finds a do- the dog like Well, that? I think what it does is it, it does a little bit of a, a motivation for, for his temper in mm-hmm. scenes that are coming up a little bit later. He's getting angrier and angrier. Yeah. At the rest of the uh, rest of the crew it, until he eventually charges you yep. know, one of them. And, yeah, I think you're right. And he's he's getting hot headed, you know. And isn't that the one piece of, of information that uh, Blair gives to McCready once they take him up and sedate him and put him in the shed is he says, watch Clark. Mm-hmm. Right? Watch Clark. But w- couldn't you also deduce, though, that if he's a thing, why would we spend any time with him looking sympathetically upon a dead dog? Clearly, a thing would not have sympathy for dead. So, really, that shot should tell us he's not a thing. And yet, right now at this point in the movie, we're probably the first time we're watching. We're probably not able to deduce things like that. We're just we're moving pretty quickly. There's a lot going on, and maybe it's already been established in our mind that he is a thing. So we're not quite ready to let him off the hook just because of that scene. But logically speaking, I don't think we have that scene if he's a thing. Right before, um, right before Blair says, "Watch Clark." I think is the first time that we get to what becomes, and will become, as you look back on it, the central theme of the movie, which is trust. And mm-hmm. and he goes, "I don't trust anybody." And McCready says, "Trust is a trust is a difficult thing to come by these days." And uh, you know, and then later on, he says that in into the dictaphone. We keep talking about that dictaphone scene, but he he says, "You know, nobody trusts anybody anymore." And that's yeah. that's the real horror or terror i guess of this movie is that your inability to trust the people that you have to trust in order to stay alive you know trust is a it's, trust is not just a luxury trust is your survival mechanism especially in a place like antarctica you have to trust the people that you're with or you're going to die well that paranoia is fully articulated in the next scene because he leaves yeah. he leaves blair after having been told watch clark and he goes and he tells the rest of the guys we can't trust each other. Well, now, radio's gone. So are the choppers. Yeah, we're completely cut off. All we can do now is hold up till spring, wait for the rescue team. No, we don't wait. Somebody in this camp ain't what he appears to be. Right now, that may be one or two of us. By spring, it could be all of us. So how do we know who's human? If I was an imitation, a perfect imitation, how would you know if it was really me? some kind of test doc well yeah possibly i've been thinking about a blood serum test what's that we could take a sample of each person's blood could mix it with uncontaminated blood i suppose if there's a reaction we'd know who isn't human we've got whole blood in storage we start working on that keep an eye on clark he's close to that dog yeah yeah we have the added horror element of isolation amped up by the fact that we flat out state that they're trapped. They're trapped. There's no going anywhere. We're cut off completely. So now the isolation is even more. The stakes of that are even higher. So we're, we're really starting to stack up our horror elements here, what, what it is. And that. I wonder if, if maybe that didn't play into a little bit of what kind of hurt this movie at the box office, because I think on a subconscious level, maybe 
a lot of audiences that go see movies don't want to believe that you can't trust anybody. And the, and the notion that of that kind of paranoia that you can't trust your fellow humans and that everybody is out to get you is a deeply uncomfortable and un- unsettling idea. And like I said, I kind of think that that is the central terror element of, of this movie is, is that it's that kind of terror. And I think that walking out of that, people maybe not even been able to understand it, um, maybe it meant on a subconscious level, but that that notion of not being able to trust anyone kind of i didn't like that movie that movie bothered me you know what i mean i think it may have been that notion especially by the time we get to the ending because it does not pat you on the head <laughs> no, and send you out into the not at, whistling the not theme at song all, at no. the end of the movie well i i think that the other thing that emerges here in this conversation about paranoia is the first overt plan of action which is the idea of rigging up some kind of a of a blood test and using the the fresh plasma that they have on store to try and analyze thing blood versus right. human blood. You know, Copper here tells us that I think it'll work. This will work. Yes. So we believe him. He's thus far. He's been a very reliable source of scientific information because, you know, I'm not sure <laughs> that it makes sense a hundred percent, but we just need that one science guy to tell us it does work. And then we're, then we're setting up one of the great sequences of all time from the information that they've been given it makes as much sense as anything Absolutely. does yeah yeah the problem is is that almost instantly as that idea is floated uh and they set off to act upon it they discover that all of the blood has been destroyed and very recently right it's like still that's it's dripping like out. still pouring out somebody just did it. somebody just did it so who was it that's a, that's a really good question. I've never been able to come up with a satisfactory answer myself. Because there's a lot of business about who has the keys. Gary has the Copper and Gary are the only ones with the keys. We were just out there with Copper. Was Norris out there outside? I have to look. I wonder if Norris did it. Could have to be Norris, right? Norris was not outside. He was not outside with everybody. And yeah, it, it has not to Gary, be Norris. So Norris had to Well, we know that Norris and Palmer are currently infected, right? When did Palmer get infected? Well, I mean, we know that because in the next scene, we find out that he is already. Somehow Norris had to do it, but I don't know what the keys have to do with anything, you know, because... Thing thing don't need no keys. Thing don't need no keys, apparently, yeah. Maybe it can just slide its tentacle through. Oh, (laughs) why not? We don't know what its skill set is exactly. Basically, it just destroys things up to now, but we don't know how capable i mean maybe the same way it gets to the blood is the same way it gets to blair it's pretty interesting that we're almost an hour into the movie and it's the first time that really everybody has suddenly started to turn on each other yeah and everybody has this big argument over over who stole the uh who who destroyed the blood so much so that poor windows just makes a run for it to try to to try to go get a gun uh and and i guess take some sort of control but of course the guys are on him before he can stop, and uh, the Capitan's got his pop gun out again, <laughs> and they're going to have to they're going to have to force uh, poor Windows to put the gun down. Uh, and this, for me, is sort of the climax of this sequence because this becomes the moment where somebody is going to have to become the leader. And, and, and once Gary doesn't want to do it, which well, is Gary really interesting, be- he's become kind of a wreck. Yeah, he's become very emotional and. As we set up by his friend getting killed, well, as you were saying, Gary is, has become kind of a wreck, and he turned and he and he had obviously become kind of a wreck when he comes in, right after Bennings is 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 torched. That's when Gary is no longer, he's no longer up for it either. Right, and yeah. you would think he would, you know, his character as we've seen take away that little knock to his emotional well being. Uh, he would probably be arguing to keep charge here he would be the guy like why should i give i didn't do anything that blood i don't know why you guys are saying this but i feel like they gave him one little they knocked him down a peg with the emotional scene to where now he's he's a vulnerable character and and might go okay i can see why you guys wouldn't trust me it's it's interesting So that almost makes me wish there had been just one more (laughs) moment not to have to say anything just one more moment between bennings and gary that's that like, that foreshadowed how big a deal it was for like just one hand of pinochle. Y- yeah, exactly. Earlier in the exactly. Movie. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know. Maybe 
It doesn't bother me. I mean, now that we're talking about it, it may be, but certainly as I'm watching the movie, it's fine. We we want Kurt Russell to be the leader anyway. Yeah. So yeah. it's it you know, may not be earned, but it's what we want. I th- I I think that it, it I think that it really is. I mean, he's I think that it's kind of set up as, uh, like maybe I'm making it up again with my backstory of him. Like I said, you know, he's he's the only guy who's really seen the shit. And and now that it now that the shit is going down, it's time for him to step up because everybody knows that that he's good under fire when when fire is happening. So and and he is even tempered. So that brings us to the midpoint of the movie, the end of the the end of act two a and um, the end of this episode. Yeah. Uh, so Cody Wyoming, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, Cody Wyoming is with the Philistines, the Pedal Jets, and the Guillotine Choir, all of which can be found, two of which can be found on Spotify and Bandcamp and everywhere else, and Guillotine Choir soon. Uh, soon. We soon. will we will be releasing music later this summer, yes. Uh, for the rest of you, come over to our Facebook page, let us know what you think, and um, give us your feedback. John, anything else? Uh, you could also do that on Twitter if you wish, or um, if you want to hear us talking about different movies and uh, on a uh, you know different with different podcast formats sometimes uh, come over to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute yeah come listen to our Silence of the Lambs commentary it turned out pretty well yeah I think so there'll be more to come there'll be more to come alright we'll see you all next time bye bye bye